when I see life and death very close up, because I work in the emergency medicine, I'm unable as a doctor to cure death. And yet there's a time then I sort of wake up, oh, the Buddha has cured death. The Buddha has understood death. Hey friends, this is Kaisen, and you're listening to the Handful of Leaves podcast, where we bring you practical Buddhist wisdom for a happier life. What does it mean to cure death? In this episode, we speak to Dr. Ng Yuan Yen, a retired emergency doctor and a veteran Buddhist teacher, to learn more about the gradual path to the end of suffering, or what Buddhists would call the deathless or nibbana. Nibbana. We've all heard of it, but do we actually know it? Is it for everyone? Is it attainable? Or is it even worth pursuing? This episode attempts to unpack that and shares a balanced approach on how we can slowly increase our happiness in the here and now. Dr. Ng also shared her inspiring journey as a Buddhist and the turning point that deepened her inspiration to practice Buddhism urgently in this life. Tune in to learn more in this practical and insightful episode. And may you never look at clouds and pebbles the same way again. Hi. Hi. So happy to have you here, Dr. Yen Yen. So today we're going to talk about a really big topic on Nibbana. And I can't think of uh, anyone better than you. And you came highly recommended by one of the Dhamma teachers, Sister Sylvia. And perhaps we can start off this podcast episode by you sharing a little bit more about yourself and how you got in touch with the Dhamma. So um, I'm born into a Buddhist family. I'm very fortunate. From the very young age, I'm exposed to Mahayana Buddhism. And I remember feeling extremely happy in the temple, especially when the devotees were chanting the Amitabha or whatever, and then circumambulating the temple. So that was when I was very young. And uh, my mother sort of uh, taught us uh, to memorize the Heart Sutra and then to copy the Heart Sutra and to recite it often. But I don't really understand it when I'm young. But now, with exposure to the Dharma practice, I appreciate very, very much. And I think the discipline from my elder uh, siblings, I'm the youngest, so the discipline helped me to restrain myself. So I learned how to uh, restrain, and I study very well. So uh, the family setting uh, was very conducive. To the practice. So eventually, uh, when I was older, I took up medicine. And then subsequently, after my postgraduate degree in emergency medicine, I have more time to explore. And then that's when I get into meditation. And I find it uh, fascinating, the exploration of the mind and the body. So then I got hooked. After that, my friend Sylvia Bay says, Hey, you cannot just meditate all the time. You must have some academic 
background. And that's when I did the diploma, the Buddhist studies, the Bachelor of Arts and Honours at the Mangala Vihara Buddhist Pali College. Then subsequently, because we were the new batch, the principal, the late uh, Bhante Nyanarama, quest us the both Sylvia and myself to teach. So I have taught for about 18 years in the Mangala Vihara. Initially, because there was very few teachers, we taught the BA students even. But subsequently, I taught the diploma students because I feel it's very important the foundation of the Dharma has to be laid, has to be understood so that from a foundation, you can venture elsewhere and you can be discerning. So this is uh, my Dharma journey. I'm uh, 67 years old already and I've retired uh, at 61. So although retired, I'm still busy managing <laughs> my family, elderly siblings, uh, which I'm very grateful to for all the help and guidance that they have given me when I was younger. So I love the Dharma and I try to practice the Dharma daily, uh, moment by moment. And I have enjoyed the Dharma. I find the Dharma is so wonderful because it is what the Buddha has said, that it will help you to reduce and remove your suffering. And what is the most important to reduce suffering is to have happiness. So then you will get to enjoy the happiness of the nature or what it is, the truth of the Dharma. So this is my journey and I'm very fortunate to be able to have the time to explore the depths of the Dharma. Wow, since like you've come a long way, since young until now, 67, still learning and teaching. I'm wondering for the concept of Nibbana, that's the core of Buddhism. And I believe it's also the goal that Buddhists are trying to strive towards. Is there a change in your understanding of what it is when you first started out learning Buddhism and now? Oh, uh, when I first started uh, learning Buddhism, I was more intrigued with meditation. It's later on when I was taught about the mindfulness of death. And mindfulness of death that life is uh, uncertain and that death is certain. And when I see life and death very close up, because I work in the emergency medicine, that I'm unable as a doctor to cure death. And yet there's a time then I sort of wake up, oh, the Buddha has cured death. The Buddha has understood death. I have to understand death for myself. The Buddha understood, the Buddha understood, but it's not me. So I felt very strongly that I have to understand death. And I then uh, sort of understood that why the Buddha, when he see these four sites, he got this urgency to practice, to see an old man, to see a sick man, to see a dead man. And then these are the signs to remind us that we have to practice. 
because we as long as we are born, we will grow old. Every moment we grow old. And we were faced with sickness like this COVID thing. And we were faced death like there were so many deaths. And if we do not know the answer, then we go round and round. So initially, it was just an interesting adventure. Then later on, when I understood more, then I find the urgency to practice, to know the Dharma for myself that I then turn the goal towards the end of suffering. And that's the same goal, same goal as in Nibbana. So my goals have changed from beginning and then now in my later years. This goal, it is gradual. If you want it so much, it becomes an obstacle. So it is just like what the Buddha say, neither hurrying, neither tearing. The energy is just nice, just middle. Neither going to self-indulgence and neither going to self-mortification. Neither indulging in pleasure nor averse to displeasure. So that you are on the middle path, you are on the Noble Eightfold Path, then it will help you end the suffering. And then you will see the happiness that he described. So you may have glimpses of it. And I think it reinforced the practice. The insights reinforce the practice that you continue to walk this path. I just have goosebumps when you talk about your experience earlier on. Uh, you mentioned that as a doctor, you realized that you cannot cure death. I think it resonated a lot with me because I was also thinking about, you know, what's the best occupation on earth? And doctor seems to be a very noble occupation, but it seems like no matter how much research and development with medicine and new intervention, there will always be new diseases, new viruses, and there's no end to this suffering, right? And that's also when I realized that, hey, actually, the most noble occupation is to realize the Dhamma and then to spread wisdom. It's just like what you're doing right now because Nibbana is the deathless. For listeners who might not necessarily understand what Nibbana is, can you unpack a little bit about why you say the Buddha can cure death? So he taught us Nibbana as the far shore. And in that far shore, it is also called the deathless, ageless, birthless, where there is uh, no more arising of the lust or desires, no more arising of hatred or ill will, no more arising of delusion. All these three roots of existence have been destroyed. So Nibbana, he defined it as the unconditioned. So this destruction means there will be no more rebirth. He says in the Mahaparinibbana, this is the last birth. Or he says to this person uh, will not be seen by me again because he will not be in the 
cycle of samsara anymore. So samsara meaning birth and death. Yes. Yes, samsara is birth and death in the realms of existence. The realms of existence ranges from the hell to the highest heaven. There is birth and death of animals and then there's birth and death of human beings. But there is another dimension where there are hell beings and then there are ghost realm beings and then there are the heavenly beings. But all these beings in existence arise and die, arise and die. And as long as they arise, they will suffer. Even in the heavens, uh, they suffer. Uh, even the richest man on earth will also suffer. When you say that the Buddha is able to cure death, from my understanding uh, and your description, it seems like one can be free from the cycles of birth and death. And by that, it is also being free from ill will, being free from hatred and delusion. Yes. Does it mean that a person needs to believe in birth and death and different realms in order to strive towards the freedom of suffering, towards Nibbana? Uh, we do not need to die to see the different realms of existence. We see people going through hell when they are suffering, when they move from war zone, they go into trucks, they want to run away and they die in the process. Isn't mm -hmm. that hell? Can you imagine so little food You'll be like hungry ghost, and you are with, and people are passing urine and shit in a very small space. Isn't that hell? Actually, you don't have to go through war zone, also feel like hell sometimes, right? Yes. Like hungry for success, there's always not enough, and yes. chasing one after the next. Yes. And if we look from a practical day to day standpoint, let's say if a person wants to be free from suffering, um, how can one experience that. The Four Noble Truths says that the origin of suffering is craving. If you want things so much, you need to have your sense pleasures from your sense objects. Then there is a no end to luxury items. But if you can be satisfied with just the four basic things, with just food, water, nutrition. If you don't demand so much from yourself, wanting this and that, be contented that there's a roof over your head, that medicine is accessible to you, that you are clothed decently. If you are contented, you can live a very simple life. Then you don't need to run after things to be a slave to your desires. You need to go back to nature to experience the quiet, the stillness, a walk in the park, looking at the sky, the, the clouds, the trees, smell the roses. There's a lot of joy in nature. You don't need the joy from material things. The joy in nature, you can satisfy your being because it's happiness and happiness are free actually. <laughs> yeah. 
Actually, sometimes we get there already with all the material gains, but we are still not happy. Like you say, the richest man and the woman monarch can still suffer. Does it mean that a person needs to give up everything in order to be free from suffering? Because I also do understand that the Buddha did say that worldly and material desires or gains, they can bring a form of happiness, just that it's not the most sustainable one. You cannot force. You have to do it gradually. So even you become homeless one or renounce one, the practice has still to be gradual. It doesn't mean that once the hair is shaved, the ropes are worn, that there's no more craving. This craving is in the mind. It's a mind object. The clinging is in the mind. So you don't have to give up everything, but you have to give up only lust, hatred and delusion. The delusion of that there is a self. Because a delusion of a self will sort of that who is to attain? So you say, I need to attain. So there's an I who need to attain. But when we see that all conditioned things are impermanent and impermanent things are suffering and suffering is non-self, once you see this, then you would want not to hold on to anything. But this is a, a gradual path. Also, you must remember that renounce beings uh, may have lots of things also. So the renunciation, the re- relinquishing has to be in the mind and that, um, that it doesn't matter if you do not have this. And then there is the destruction of uh, craving, cessation, dispassion. So these are the things that the Buddha taught. But you know that you have to be quiet to see the gems at the bottom of the lake. If it's like muddied up, you can't see. So you have to be quiet. Then you can see. You have to pay attention. So it is attainable and it is being verified by the Buddha and the Sangha members who are all human beings. And these Sangha members include like the stream entrance, like even King Bimbisara, Ananda Pintika, practicing lay people, so they, many of them may be stream entrance too. So do not be disheartened. There are uh, like-minded practitioners. They come together and we encourage each other in the Dharma practice. So for listeners who are not sure what stream enter is, it's basically you're kind of dipping your toes in the water of Nibbana and you can't unsee the wisdom and there's no turning back uh, that Nibbana is guaranteed. Uh, from my understanding, it's within seven lifetimes. Is that correct? Yes, yes. That's the, what the teachings say. All right. And you mentioned about gradual path. I'm wondering whether you can share your personal experience about how you realize, you know, holding on to impermanence is suffering and how you slowly relinquish. Okay, so impermanence is something of the body and of the mind of all phenomena and you can always get in touch with impermanence when you do anapanasati, when you do breathing in and breathing out. So I would recommend highly that people practice the 16 steps 
of Anapanasati and also practice Satipatthana. So you just read the suttas. It is a line-by-line guidance. And so in the first four steps, where you just breathe in and breathe out, the first step, breathing in, you know you are breathing in long or breathing out long. And then the second step is you know that you are breathing in short or breathing out short. Then the third step is to experience the entire breathing in. Eventually, when you look at it, it gets calm. When you look at just the breathing in, you can see impermanence. There's a beginning of the breath, and then the breath itself, and then the process of the breath, and then the end of the breathing in. So there is a a rising and an ending. So in it, you can see the three. You see the impermanence. You see the non-self. It's just a condition. And this is very close to yourself, to your being. This requires practice. And then you then go into the foundation of feelings to see what is the feeling of just breathing in and out. Nothing else, just breathing in and out. Not caring about anything in the rest of the world. You will experience the rapture of the body. Breathing in and out, you just feel the vibrations of the body as a body is just breathing. And that is pleasurable in the mind. And you also experience the mental formations. And this mental formation also changes. These bodily formations and mental formations are impermanent. Just like the clouds in the sky, the cloud formation in the sky is impermanent. You look at them as if there's something substantial. But when you go above the clouds in the plane, you see there are nothing. There's no substance in it at all. Cloud formation, bodily formation, mental formation are empty. And then you see it for yourself day in, day out. We all tie the mind to mind objects. This mind objects uh, is not the mind. This mind objects are like the Buddha says in Satipatthana, the hindrances. It's like the pebble that you throw into the mind. But it is not the mind. The mind has a base and it has changed. And even in the pleasurable states, it changes. So there's nothing substantial about it. But of course, experiencing the pleasurable changes is pleasurable. But you also know that these are impermanent, that there is nothing to hold on to. And most important, not to be caught up with the mind objects. And the mind objects are what? He very clearly stated the mind objects are the hindrances. So you see hindrances are are lust. So you throw a pebble of lust into your mind pool, the mind becomes colored. You can't see clearly. You throw the pebble of anger into your mind, it boils, you can't see clearly. If you throw a pebble of doubt, it's muddy, you can't see clearly. You throw a pebble of sloth, 
is all heavily thick, like an algae infested weeds. And then you throw the pebble of restlessness and worry. Then that pool, the mind pool, just sweep here and there and restless. You can't see the mind for what it is. So these are hindrances and you have to see it for itself that if you do your practice or focus, you would not be distracted by all this, but you have to see them as mind objects that arise and cease and it gets liberated or it gets uh, what they call release. So these are things that we see in the practice daily when you walk, you see yourself moving, your activities moving. If you are mindful, your mind is peaceful. If you are not mindful, you get caught up, your mind is not peaceful. So these are caught up with mind objects. Yeah, I, I really like how you've made it so simple, right? The gateway to Nibbana is just as simple as with this breath. And by breathing in and out, watching, contemplating, you're able to see the arising, the seizing, and so many more. And I, I think this is something that is very hopeful because I used to fall into this perception as well that Nibbana is something that is very far away that I might not be able to experience. And it's always something else away from me, beyond myself. But you have yeah, just given examples of how we can uh, contemplate on this daily. And it, it seems like with all the different examples you have given, Nibbana or the way to attain Nibbana or to experience, it really starts from stealing the mind. And then once that's done, I like your analogy of the pebble. You no longer use the pebble to create all the ripple effects. So you clear off the hindrances. You see things clearly as they are. And you stop clinging, you stop craving. And that's where you can really renounce, I think, from a mental level. And nothing very much can cause you distress despite external circumstances can be very chaotic. So I'm wondering from your perspective, what would make it worthwhile for people to chase after Nibbana? Because I, I have heard of people who would feel that Nibbana, it's not for me. You know, I am okay going through life's up and down, it makes me feel human to go through sadness, to go through anger, and peace is just a little bit too boring. <laughs> if you suffer enough, if you really suffer mentally, then you want to chase after Nibbana. The Nibbana is defined as the end of craving, destruction of craving. And so we have to practice and to see for ourselves how craving makes us suffer. And then you would want to end that craving. This suffering, you have to know it for yourself. So sense pleasures, like, I want to enjoy life, man. I want to enjoy life to the maximum. But what is that? What is the enjoyment? That sense pleasure is fleeting. At the end of the life, there may be regrets. And that's regrets is not what you want. You want to know how to direct your life to ensure that you did the best you could do in this life. To carry on with just living life as in enjoying the pleasures of the senses. Then it's just an ordinary being who doesn't know 
the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, and don't know that what he has potential in himself to realize uh, that all this is just a, a wah-wah game. It's unstable. It is a charcoal pit that you are led on to it. Uh, and that is like a blowing torch. That is the, and the wind is blowing at you and the torch, you are burning. So he says, your world is burning. When you're sick, uh, you are burning. For that moment of sense pleasures, you are burning. And the person will be suffering. And that uh, death is at the door and life is just wasted. But then uh, you have to walk the middle path. So knowing the gratification, the danger, the escape, one would want to escape from it. One want to realize the full potential of a human being. And what the Buddha says that it is possible. So I think um, I don't buy it lah, that the eat, drink and be merry. That's not the way. Yeah, I think it does require, a, like you say, a gradual path in order to realize. It reminded me of the story of Venerable Sariputta. I mean, he, he and his other very good friend, they were at this party, right? So at the top of the hill, they were seeing everyone drinking and be merry. It's not that they haven't indulged before. I think it got to a point where they realized that it's fleeting and there's no point. That's when they went in search for the truth. And that was before they, they met the Buddha. And I I really hear you in terms of saying it's only when a person really feels the pinch of suffering that they would try to find an answer. Yes. I'm also thinking maybe it's okay if a person wants to just go through life, going through the ups and downs. Maybe it just isn't time for that yet and we can you know, plant the seeds, cultivate our mindfulness and rather than taking a big leap to say, okay, we have to strive for nirvana, but on a day-to-day basis, how can we just relinquish bit by bit and be slightly happier? And then eventually when the time is right, then we would see, oh, this is what the Buddha said about nirvana. And then the, the roadmap is already presented to us and we are ready to, to walk the path fully. Yeah, because I, I know sometimes people can hear like, oh, very serious, right? I have to give off my uh, sense pleasure, cannot watch TV, you know, cannot go party. Is it wrong? And I think it can scare a lot of people away. I think it's a middle path because some people need to distress. So I think some distraction, I mean, this is their way of distressing. But you want have to be very aware of like uh, where you may overindulge, where you overspend time on the handphone, on certain items. You must be able to regulate yourself. You must be able to restrain yourself. You must be able to discern what is important in your life. You must put time aside for the practice, sometimes just to be quiet. Of course, when you are stressed, it's good to ventilate. It's a a way, but you must associate with good people. You must be associate with good friends who wouldn't like uh, lead you to even down a darker path. It must be friends who are like listen to you and then to encourage you and then to help you navigate back into a less stressful situation. 
So it is important to have good friends, listen to the Dharma, pay proper attention. It is gradual. You don't sort of like, uh, I don't want this, this become aversive. You, you might just develop an aversion. You, you cannot force Nibbana. It will suffer because when you force, it's a one thing. So you will see gradually. You learn how to be mindful. Yeah. And I think it is uh, individual because we all wake up at different times depending on the conditions. It depends on the conditions. The conditions are right. Then you provide you with more time to practice. But I'm just saying the extremes to say that you, if, let's say, you indulge too much, this is the problems you have. Mm, so it's to understand the limitation of sense pleasure and always knowing that, let's say, if we, we get too carried away, Nibbana, the gateway to it, it's just here and now. It's, it's not exclusive, it's available, and it's also possible to attain. To me, I feel that's very hopeful and that's very inspiring. It's kind of like a home that we can always turn to. <laughs> yes, yes. That's why you take refuge in the Dharma, the Buddha, the Sangha. And that the, this Dharma of Nibbana can be seen. Sanditiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko, Opanaiko, Pachatam Veditabu, Vinuhiti. If it cannot be seen, if Nibbana cannot be seen, he won't say this. He says Nibbana can be seen. The end of craving can be seen. The wise for himself. The journey has to be walked by oneself. And be very fortunate you have good friends to walk on this journey, to encourage you on this path. Mm, definitely. So to be experienced individually by the wise and you know turning inwards. Thank you so much for all your sharing. I really like how you started the podcast by saying that there is something beyond death and it is possible, it is a gradual path and you also provided some of the key steps to do it on a daily basis, anchoring on our breath, contemplating on impermanence. I think these are very quick action steps that our listeners can take away and regarding the point on it is possible to experience the Dhamma, we talk about the triple gem. So we have the Buddha, his teachings, the Dhamma and the Sangha. It is precisely because there are disciples and there are individuals who saw the Dhamma, realized what the Buddha realized, that we have the third jewel, which is the, the Sangha. And there are enlightened beings around the world and they're just like testimonies and role model for us to look up to and say that, hey, if they can do it, we can, can also do it. And how we go about it, of course, is at our own pace and based on our own causes and condition. So I just wanted to end off with that. And any last words from you, Dr. Yen Yen? Uh, no. All right. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. I thank you for inviting me. Sadhu. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And that's a wrap for this episode. My key takeaway is that life is uncertain and only death is certain. If we heedlessly indulge in the pleasures offered in the world through our sight, taste, hearing, touch and smell, we seek refuge in unsatisfactory and unreliable conditions. And we may live a life full of suffering and one that is filled with regrets. The Buddha offered a system, an education out of suffering that is achievable and attainable. 
May we all plant the seeds and conditions for our awakening and may we take refuge in what is beyond birth and death. If you've benefited from this episode, do share this with a friend and leave us a five-star review wherever you're tuning into this podcast. Till the next episode, may you stay happy and wise.